You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I'm Alex Faulkner, and I help connect digital leaders with interim talent in the NHS, and I'm your host. Bill, you're the closest on my screen to the left. If it's okay with you, can you introduce introduce yourself to the group and, and just tell us what you do at, at Lancashire? Yeah, I'm uh, Phil Horner. I'm Director of um, Information and Performance here at Lancashire Care. Um, essentially, we've got two teams, which um, might be helpful to expand on a little bit later on with my question when it comes out, but we've got a uh, performance team and a business intelligence team. So I'm quite interested in the way that we sometimes divvy up arbitrarily around the way that we manage our data uh, and the impact of that. Uh, but that's me in a nutshell. Great. Thank you for that, Phil. And Asma, would you like to go next? Hi, I'm Asma Nafis. I'm the Associate Director of Business Intelligence for Directly Commissioned Services at Arden and Gem. So I have a central data processing reporting team and I'm also responsible for integrated AGEM NHSA teams in the seven regions. Great, thank you for Asma. Um, Sanjay, would you like to go? Hi, I'm Sanjay Sashdev. I'm the Head of Data Warehousing and Reporting Solutions. So my, my team basically sits within the healthcare analytics domain in in MSC, uh, but I managed to actually manage two different teams, a data warehouse team and reporting solutions team. And that's at Mid and South Essex, Sanjay, isn't it? Yes, Ed, yeah, sorry, I said MSC, it's a Mid and South Essex. Perfect, thank you for that. Uh, and last but not least, Ayub, would you like to go? Hi, everybody, I'm Ayubaya. I'm the Director of Insight and Data Platform for NHS England Improvement. So I am four months into my role at NHS EI. Um, and uh, prior to this, I was uh, I, I worked at the CSU with asthma, so I was uh, the chief data officer at the CSU, um, and um, been working the data and BI space for the last 16 years, um, and now leading on the national NHS strategy for how we do recovery. Most recently, led the vaccination data architecture across NHS EI and NHS as a whole. Um, so this is well, that's my role. Thank you. Thank you for that. All, um, all really, really great to have you here. So um, I'm going to go kick right off. Um, and Phil, I would actually like to go to your question, first of all, because I think it's probably the most open um, and it would probably spark the most debate. Um, so I'll pose it. And then if you want to add a bit more to, to that, you like you mentioned before, that's absolutely fine. So so Phil has asked a group, um, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Are we swimming in data or drowning in data? And, and, and that's it. So Phil, would you like to sort of elaborate on that a bit more? Yeah, so I'm often surprised when people come into our trust and look at how much data we've got. So I don't know whether that's um, unique to us, but I think that the surprise is probably about the perception of data that we have in the NHS rather than something unique about Lancashire Care. But I think that that surprise um, often reflects something that's going on internally, which is people do not get into the water of the data and actually how do we entice people into that water and let them feel comfortable swimming around in it? I don't know how far I can stretch that analogy, but I'll keep going a little bit more and see if I can. Um, but I think there's something around people feeling needs to feel confident before they get in, get into the data. But the but the upshot is people stay away from from that that data pool, and often that builds up this myth of we haven't got the data. So there's a, and I think it's so I think we've got a gap between this big reservoir of data that we've got and how we get it to be an everyday kind of, uh, make it everyday for everybody, rather than something specialist that we need to have specialist translators like people in my team to give to them. 
Um, and just to say a little bit more, the, my background is um, I'm a social worker who's always worked in the NHS, trained as a, a, a therapist, then went into operational management and learned the data language, almost like a second language, because I wanted to tell the story about what was going on in our services, because I felt sometimes there was a bit of a gap between the story that was being presented and what was actually happening. But that that very sense that actually there's something missing in our block about in our in our approach in the NHS about how we get real impact from data is something that that um, I often end up musing upon. Okay, great. Does anyone add anyone add to add to that then? Asper, you look like you were nodding your head there, nodding your head there at something. You're on mute, Asma. Sorry, I knew we'd get one of them in today. <laughs> get it out of the way first. Um, yeah, no, I was nodding along. So so probably similar to yourself, Phil, I came from private practice. I was a solicitor for my sins before joining the NHS and speaking data was one of those skills that you have to pick up quite quickly. And I think almost in my head, there's three aspects to that swimming or drowning in data. There's the bit around the, the, the data teams tend to sit separate from the analytics teams and then they sit separate from the people who need to use the output to have insight to transact the change and we struggle as an NHS body to have a common language that flows through um, and how we unpick that is, is one of those conundrums and I think it fits with the people side so we know the outcomes that we want we know the direction we want to head to but you know that OD wrapper of how do you change behaviours how do you get three quite distinct teams and skill sets of people working together collaborative, collaboratively rather than this silo working. I think a lot of it comes in the OD wrapper of how do we get people to behave differently to the way they've always done things. I hope I can see you've raised your hand there. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with Asma and I'm going to go back to Phil's analogy um, of swimming and drowning. And I think if you speak to an analyst, an analyst will tell you that they're swimming. If you speak to a business user, they'll tell you they're drowning and they don't have enough still, even though, even though they're drowning. Um, and I think from that perspective, what that tells us is that the, the level of maturity in terms of the way we use data and information to drive insight to make decisions isn't well understood. So I've probably said it for, for the last 24 months now, and we've been doing a piece of work specifically around um, increasing the understanding of data, information, and BI, and reporting. They are all slightly different things. I think people confuse those things as one. They are different things um, in the general workforce of the NHS. And I think that that is something that's we underplay. You know, it's in everybody's job description to, you know, to digest in the uh, analytics or insight to drive decisions. What does that actually mean? How are we doing that to make sure that the relevant individuals are skilled up? Um, and I think going, it's a brilliant analogy, Phil. I, I really like it. You know, swimming and drowning. I think we we need to stop stop swimming for the analysts because they need to. They don't need to swim. Quite frankly, they just need to provide the insight that the people who are currently drowning better understand what they're getting. And commonly, too often, our analysts start to become reporters. They're reporting. They produce an Excel spreadsheet and put in an email. Um, and that's too often the case. And I think what we should be doing is using them to drive insight. Cheers, Alex. Great. Thank you for that. Sanjay, I can see you wanted to say something there. I mean, absolutely. Uh, I agree with what uh, all has been said. and. Uh, there's no point in repeating many of those points, which which I agree to. 
um, but I'll also add a slightly different uh, perspective to this is that um, in, it kind of depends on uh, who you are in terms of the data needs. So in some cases, in some cases, the water is, so, water is kind of so shallow that you can't even swim. By what that I mean is that uh, depending on your needs, you may, you may not actually have the data. On one hand, the organization has got ample data. It's got actually more data than it actually needs or, or it actually can actually manage and process. On other hand, you may need a data for something specific and that doesn't exist. So I think what we have seen over the last five years or so, at least I would say, is, is that that is that that dynamics is changing. So yes, I want plenty of data, but do I have the right data? Do I have the data which actually caters to my requirements in these in these circumstances? I think there's a lot to talk about, but probably we'll actually uh, sort of go on that further in in kind of future questions. Yeah. Great, thank you. So did that does that answer your question a bit, Phil? What do you reckon? Yeah, it does. I mean, what what I think is um, what's what I always find reassuring about these kind of conversations is a common thread. So when when somebody else says, "Yeah, we're 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 we've got the same kind of issues that we're dealing with," um, I think that's really reassuring. But it also, I guess, means that there's something about the answers aren't going to lie in any one organisation. So I think that that the the, the comment about the uh, um, almost about, about the state of the NHS is really kind of pertinent. About this feels like a cultural thing here, and I think so. I think there's something around for me rethinking common structures. So we've got our analysts and we've got our BI team within my team, um, but still those those cultures are uh, really evident and you know which team somebody belongs in. So I'm really interested in whether that can be broken down a little bit more so we can start to think about how we blur those boundaries a little bit. And that would then allow us to blur the boundary with clinical services in terms of there's some about confidence and people moving at different speeds. But I think there is something around, um, if that's not just Lancashire Care, if, if we're seeing the same thing in, in South Essex, seeing the same thing across the country, then I think there is something about a conversation that needs to take place about. So how do we start getting that kind of thinking differently? Because otherwise the momentum doesn't change. There's something then about how we think about think about that process differently in the in the NHS. Great, great. Oh, Sanjay, I can see your hand there. I mean, absolutely. Um, um... I just want to add to what Philip just said is, is that many of those conversations have been as old as uh, I have been working in NHS and I believe they've been there even before that. So so you like, I mean, that's such a common site and such a common practice that we see uh, sort of external, uh, whether it's a consultancy service or whether whether you got new people uh, with basically no NHS background coming into NHS and then kind of start talking about the things which which people have been talking for a number of years and and you kind of you know when as an outsider when you come in you kind of think that um that that our our model of information and business intelligence is is still not mature even even that as an organization we have existed we are one of the largest organizations in the world uh, and then even then even in this day and age our our model the maturity levels of of our business intelligence systems are not good enough Great. Great. Thank you all for this. Um, next question. So all three next questions, really, there's just different points that I broke down, but all relate to COVID, would you believe it or not? So I have broken them down a tiny bit. So um, if it's changed slightly, please, please do excuse me. But um, I'm going to go to yours first, Ayab. So um, you've talked about, so your question, sorry, COVID has been the greatest challenge the NHS has faced. 
how do we take the learnings from the last year and build it into the recovery agenda and to make access to real-time data the norm? Do you want to touch on that first of all, what you meant by that, and, and then we can go from there? Yeah, so obviously I work in the centre, right? So Phil and Sandra, you know, take it with a pinch of salt because you guys are on the ground and, and, and on the front line of all of this stuff. Um, and, you know, don't get me wrong, at the same time, I've worked in a trust as well. So my, I started my career in a trust. So I know exactly what it's like to be in a trust as well. Uh, so I have, I definitely have that level of, of, of appreciation of it as well. Um, the last the last 12, 18 months from a centre perspective was I landed in the building on probably the third week of March and we were told we need all of this information now. And I said, oh, my date is four weeks out of date. Um, and oh, that's not good enough. That's not going to work. Um, we need yesterday's data today. Or, we, or even better, we need last hour's data now. So we did, we did a lot of things to put different things in place. And we put, as Dennis just always does, our wonderful sit reps. You know, we stood at yet another sit rep up. And um, we gave you guys on the ground, unfortunately, more burden um, to complete these sit reps. And but it is what the what the country needed. This is what we needed to understand, understand the pressure that NHS was facing. It was the right thing to do. We had no other alternative. But what we learned from that was we can get yesterday's data today, right? Albeit at an aggregate level, not at a patient level. Then we went to the vaccine program. I did something slightly even more different. I put a I put a process in place on the vaccine program that we had last hour's data this hour. So every hour I put a, a process in place that allowed us to have a real-time position or a near real-time position for right across the country to say how many vaccines were being delivered. So we learned each time. Now we sort of come to the pandemic and the pandemic's currently in, in a sort of, sort of semi-wave three. I, I'm scared to call this a wave three. Um, but a semi-wave three, because we don't know where it's going to peak really yet. Um, and there's lots of stuff going on. Um, and there's this whole recovery agenda that's kicking off at the same time. And the NHS is trying to better understand its capacity, its demand, uh, and its current waiting lists for referred treatment patients. And in that, I find that a lot of the data is still weekly. Theatre management data that we're collecting is, is fortnightly. It, it, it's, you know, it's. I'm not sure how trust operate at a local level. You know, Phil, I don't know how you guys are doing at a local level, or Sanjay, how you guys are doing at a local level. But some of the trust that I do know of and I am working with are actually implementing newer solutions to actually overcome some of the limitations of their current PaaS-based systems, because their PaaS and EMR systems have certain limitations that unfortunately mean they can't do everything that they want to do. But what I want to do is I want to move to a different architecture of data. I want to move to an, on, uh, an event-based data architecture, which means small packets of data are circling around the NHS at all times, right? And it's not about big batch files being transmitted at the end of each day or at the end of each week or at the end of each month. But like I mentioned in the meeting earlier today, I'll just say it, when we start to acquire this level of data with great power comes great responsibility, right? So this is not to, this is, you know, the culture that we've created over the pandemic is about a culture of support. And I want, I want, I want us and our NHS to maintain that sort of culture of support. So with real-time data, how do we help is, the, is, 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 the, is, is what we should be doing. How do we help? And that's what, you know, the on vaccines program, that's what we did a lot of. 
how do we help? We know there's an issue here. How do we help? That's a great so question. Yeah. It's great. So real time data, basically. So Sanjay, did you raise your hand there? Sorry, I think I think it came up. Yeah, it, it's like I mean, it's two things. One is yes, absolutely, there is a need for for a real time data. There are there are no two ways about it. There are no two questions. We need to get to a point where we can get the information uh, um, as live as possible. Uh, but also about uh, going back to Ayub's point around, um, I mean, that's a terminology I very often use when I'm talking to people about that what NHS now needs is a transactional data. So, I mean, I very often give an example of that, uh, that the, in many cases, the data we manage at this stage is only tells you, like, I mean, take an example of that. If you actually visit to a, if you actually, if you actually visited a restaurant for a meal, so at the moment you are just getting a data which tells you that two people went for a dinner. It doesn't tell you what they actually ate. So you know that sort of transactional data you need. So all it tells you that I had a patient admitted in my hospital and and then we and then this is a treatment we did. So so we do have systems which actually uh, which basically capture the information uh, on that particular patient during their stay in the hospital. Problem is uh, uh, I mean take an example of the of systems which are used by the hospitals. The problem is that data is not being used in the right intention or in the right way. What we saw in this case, especially during the uh, especially especially during the surge of the COVID, was that there there was a need to actually report on the patients uh, in terms of their NIV status, in terms of their oxygen saturation, in terms of their oxygen usage, because because basically that's what the need was. So, you know, it kind of emphasized the point that yes, there is information available. But those channels are missing, which make sure that the information flows through properly and actually gets into the right hand. And also, also we got to bear in mind that NHS is already stretched uh, in as far as far as resources are concerned. So we have to do it in a very smart way that we do not put any extra uh, burden on, on the stretched resources. We cannot expect clinicians. Uh, see, main job of the clinicians is to actually treat patients. We cannot expect them to actually spend hours or sort of a significant amount of their time in actually in actually capturing that information. We have to find smarter ways of doing that. Asma, I can see you raise your hand there. Yeah, I, I guess with all of that, almost the foundations, the premise that makes everything work is having the right technology that doesn't put an additional burden on clinicians and is strong enough to cope with that volume of data flowing regularly, the legal basis and the and then the regulatory framework that sits around it. So if I reflect on the last 12 to 15 years within the NHS, we've always known what the right thing to do is, but the blocker has been an IG person and this is why you you know saying this is why you can't do it and we we kind of don't have or haven't seen historically that pragmatism around and here's a solution and we did that really quickly for covid we turned that around very quickly and it's almost embedding some of that now going forward so we don't fall back into old ways of doing things so the computer you know that that kind of basis when i reflect on ig people i worked in the past it's always a computer says no rather than this is how you can do it or this is what you want to achieve this is how we can do it it's a really good point. Phil, do you have anything to add from, from your side of Lancashire things? Yeah, so it, it, it kind of uh, prompted a couple of thoughts, which which are maybe slightly tangential. But um, I think there's something about which what data we're getting um, uh, that because um, I think this is, goes back to Sanjay's point about there's some data which is did somebody turn up at my restaurant? I'd be really confident about very quickly knowing whether somebody turned up or not. But it's the debate about um, was that steak cooked rare or well done? 
and that's the bit where I think there's something about the, the about um, um, at the minute um, a lot of uh, a lot of our feeding that sensor beast is done in Excel, so kind of pulling data out of our data warehouse or, or often manual collation, and it's a big chore for the teams who are doing it. But I think there's a benefit to it in terms of data quality, in terms of really kind of questioning before we before we hit send around some of the validation. Uh, for example, uh, an outbreak. Was it an outbreak? Were the two cases connected or just um, coincidental as an example of some of the stuff that we've been reporting on on a daily basis? And it prompts a debate within the within the incident room about wanting to understand that. So we're really confident about that data. And there's, there's often a worry for me about a high degree of automation about do we often assume that that data is correct? Actually, when we look at it afterwards and validate the, the other points and nuances that the data isn't sophisticated enough to collect, at a trust level, there's implications to that. If that becomes part of a national story and narrative and decision making, that would be amplified. So I suppose it's just I'm interested in other people's thoughts about that, whether other people are absolutely confident about the data that comes out from an automated process or whether other people share those kind of concerns. I hope would you have anything to add to that as it was your your question? I think I think I think I think from that perspective, Phil, I think there's there's so many things that go on right in a in 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 different places. So it's I think I think th if you think about all of these things, right, they stand back to what you said right at the beginning, Phil, in terms of swimming and sinking, right, or drowning rather. I think was was your word, right? And and for me, that still stands. Right, and a lot of these things and I think when you come back to the data that we're talking about here I'll give an example of, there's, there's one trust I won't name the trust because it, it's not fair on the trust that I named them but there's one trust that I'm that, that, that we're working with um, and they're, they're, they're a medium-sized trust I'd say they're not a small trust they're not a large trust but they're a medium-sized trust in a in a big health economy in a big ICS with about four or you know, three other trusts in that health economy as well um, and their processes internally, their, you know, their, their, their EMR system um, doesn't always do everything that it needs to do, and 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 therefore they have to supplement it with warehouse-based processes, with other tooling that sits on top of it, that actually is allowing them to drive workflows and business decisions, and validation of waiting lists, etc., in a different way. And I think I think that tells us that we at this time don't have the correct infrastructure in place at the ground level um, and we are still facing some challenges in making sure that we're able to that we're able to address some of these things but, um, sorry, sorry. sorry i didn't mean to interrupt yeah so, uh, sanjay did you put your hand up then i mean i just wanted to add uh, to uh, i mean like one of the reasons that why why uh, organizations actually end up uh, sort of putting in these interim interim or you know kind of placeholder or sort of a semantic layers or like kind of these kind of solutions is because uh, let's not forget that at any given time we are dealing with desperate uh, sort of varied systems in terms of their in terms of their functionality in terms of their age when they were implemented many of the softwares currently used in NHS have actually ran out of the support contracts years and years back and they're still being run they're still being uh, sort of uh, in a better way or not being actually maintained by the trust local teams uh, sort of the local it teams or local software teams they are actually trying to 
they're trying their best to maintain those and 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 that causes the issues of interoperability between the systems then what we do is that we like i mean i mean the pressure organizations would have from from like nhsi or ae uh, so you know you have to come up with the solutions which is which kind of uh, in all best intentions are put together as a hybrid solutions where I need to do something about it, but I do not have time and resources to actually sort of create something which should be created in an ideal world, but I have to find ways of, of actually overcoming the problems I have at this stage. So then you end up with it. Uh, in many cases, you actually create a temporary solution and those those temporary solutions have been in place for years and years now because we never revisited those. Asma, I can see your, see your hand raised there. Yeah, it's that piece uh, around efficiencies at source rather than local fixes to resolve. And it's quite ironic, I was reflecting on this. So you might have physical estate within a trust that is no longer fit for purpose for, the, for, for what it was originally designed for because services have evolved. And then you get capital investment in that way. Technology moves so quickly, the focus on investing in the tech within trust. So, you know, our mobile phones through work are upgraded every two, three years, but the past systems will sit there for years and years. And there's something is around a reconfiguring about the thought process and where the investment of money should go. Yeah, it's a really good point. Thank you all for that. Um, right, we'll move on. Um, just conscious of time. Um, so Asma, I'm going to go to your question now. As I said before, all last three questions were all about COVID related. So I'm going to spin them off a little bit. That's OK. Um, and I think your the first line of that question is, is, is a good one. Um, so Asma asked, what is the key learning from the preceding 18 months? So Asma, do you want to sort of maybe tell us your key learning and sort of expand on that and, and then we can hear the rest of the groups? So I think some of the what I want to draw out with this question was, um, I guess a lot of the key learning we'd agree on the piece around kind of collaborative working, using digital platforms, data sharing, true system working that we haven't had before, the breaking down of some of the bureaucracy that sits around, you know, virtual clinics. When I was uh, AD of contracting, we spent three years trying to negotiate and got 100 virtual clinics for the following year out of our, our provider. And now we're in a different landscape where the majority of things were done virtually for the last year. It was drawing out some of the conversation around that, but also the other side. So we're on this digital tech train, which is positive, but making sure that we don't miss out on the health inequalities that might be increased as a result of this. So, you know, the elderly or people who don't have access to the same level of technology and also the vulnerable or language barriers where sometimes meeting physically makes a difference. So it was it was kind of bringing that into some of the conversation, how the, you know, how well we've done over the preceding 18 months, but also the things we need to keep in mind as we move forward about what do we retain and what do we revisit. Great. So anyone had to add to that? Sanjay, you look like you were shaking your head there. Have you got something to say? I mean, I absolutely agree with those points. And honestly, you know, as I said um, at the start of the conversation, that many of these conversations have been going on for years in NHS. So, so then you think that why don't we do anything? Uh, like basically why we're not doing anything about it? And uh, um, but, you know, this is the constant firefighting, the constant battle to actually uh, uh, sort of uh, go and do what is needed today uh, actually uh, kind of leaves us uh, unprepared for tomorrow. And um, like, I mean, um, honestly, I've seen I've seen actually things going from bad to worse, I would say. I mean, I'm not particularly talking about my organization as such, but you kind of get that sort of feeling in NHS is, is that now. I mean, basically, there were times when 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 uh, 
when particular job was actually done by two people. Now, now the expectation in NHS is that same level of job would be carried out by a single person. And so because we are concerned on resources, because we are concerned on, on sort of resources, whether it's financial, human resources, system, the architecture is actually getting older by the day. There are like, I mean, basically, we've, basically we are lagging behind in adopting the new technology. And yeah, so there are so many factors which actually have a, a direct or an indirect impact on on what we see then actually daily basis we have to deal with. Great. I have from your perspective, because obviously, you know, you're, you're a central perspective. What's your views? I think going back to Asma's question, I think from my perspective is. Um, if we if we put our mind to something, we can do it. And that's what we've learned, right? Probably echoes what Sanju just said as well, right? And and I found that we can achieve more together than without each other. And we're not we're not that far apart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of my first challenges at the start of COVID was the National Incident Control Center gave me a problem of I there's all these spreadsheets flying around recording deaths. I thought, oh my God. Um, we're never going to know what the death numbers are if the forecasts are true, because we want to control this. So in three days, we implemented a solution that basically put an electronic system in place called CPNS. And we rolled that out to every single trust in the country, acute mental health community, um, to make sure that we were able to factually capture COVID patients who were dying in hospital. Um, and we did that, you know, in, a, in probably a tenth of the time that it would have taken us in ordinary days. And how did you do it, Was it pure manpower? Was it pure just get it done? Do you know what? The thing was, there was a willingness from the trust to accept it very quickly. There was immense amount of commitment from our people right and our people felt it was their sort of moral duty to do this because actually we had to do something right um and and finally we were empowered because we were in crisis mode you know, we were in total crisis mode people were asking questions that we could not answer at that point and um but but what it proved was we we did something at a at a speed that was never before possible and and it i've lived by that all throughout the last 12 months as a result of it and i've just basically talked about it all the time and said guys we did it we, we, we can do this we can really do this we don't need to dance around the handbags if we disagree let's disagree it's fine to disagree right but let's have it out quickly and move on from there Right, not dance around the handbags, and we'll come back next week, and we'll talk again the week after, and two months later you're still talking. You know that's the old world, right? That's I don't want to go back there. I really don't want to go back there. That 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 place daunts me. I, I'm daunted by that place and and haunted by that place, and I, I hate it, and I really don't want to go back there. I want us as a as a wider NHS to learn from this to make sure that actually we can take this stuff forward and and work much more collaborative, collaboratively, much more closer and be more trusting of each other like we were over the last 18 months. Great. Thank you, Ayf, for that. Asma, I can see you've raised your hand there. 
Yeah, I think the key word there is that empowerment because as a NHS body, we've got the very skilled, very clever people who can come up with the ideas as you've just demonstrated, but it's the empowerment, the the being able to go away and get on with it. And it's one of those that if I, if I think about the big change I've seen in behaviours around me over the last 18 months, we've gone from let's go away and we need a bit more information to make a decision and we're three months on to people taking the stance of unless I'm told otherwise, I'm going to do X, Y and Z. And the chances are you're not going to be challenged because it's the right thing to do and then you move forward. But I think we've got some amazing people working within the NHS. It's just empowering people to transact some of the changes that they know need to happen. Great, thank you. And Phil, um, would you like to add anything on, on this point just from your I, perspective? I think, I, I think I'd just reinforce and, and, and kind of push a little bit further Iob's point really, which I think is that what we've learned is that that culture has changed and and um, it, data and information doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's always shaped by that culture that's around it. And the culture that shifted has been, I think that it's felt more like the, the focus has been the NHS as a, as a kind of body rather than our own local kind of um, uh, I guess focus. So that's that's what shifted. So I guess for me, the thing that 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 needs to, that, or the, my reflection would be, maintaining that culture is what's needed if data is going to have the biggest impact. Um, and it feels like that is the, the direction of travel, which I think is really positive. Great, thank you all. It's, it's really interesting to hear all your points, um, and it's it's some of it's you know the eighteen months of, that we've had is um, yeah it sounds like an absolute challenge and, and you know hats off to all of you. So um, Sanjay, um, I'm moving on to your question now. Um, again, it's it, it's a bit similar, but obviously because I know COVID would have been a topic of discussion, and I purposely didn't come back to you and say can we change questions because I knew that would be a a, a drawing point. Um, but I have picked out a bit of the questions, Sanjay, which I think we, we've not probably spoke out or, or not in too much detail, um, but I. We'll read the full question and then I'll, I'll pick out the bit which I think would be quite a good discussion. So Sanjay said there has been a rush in getting more data and manage things differently over the last 18 months or so to help to help the healthcare sector manage the pandemic proficiently. How much of this change is sustainable in the long run and will this bring a permanent shift in the data information management paradigm or will we be very quick to forget the lessons learned from the past? So quite similar what we spoke about but Sanjay do you want to just add a bit from that? So do you think maybe we could go around and ask each of us, do you think we'll be going back to that shift or is this now the new future within within the data and information services teams? I mean, I think it, it, I think my, my sort of question very nicely uh, sort of uh, starts where the conversation just ended. Mm, agreed. Uh, that in terms of that, uh, yes, we have seen a, a shift in the culture. We have seen we have seen as we have seen a, an improvement in the sense of belonging when when like, I mean, um, so, you know, like um, I think probably we had what five or six different uh, sort of versions of the COVID trip when kind of since since this started. And then like, I mean, uh, <laughs> that's a very, very sort of a common practice to actually receive a template by, by sort of late Friday afternoon with an expectation that we start using that new template from Monday onwards. So, uh, so, you know, so, so, so basically, but what I noticed this time compared to uh, what we had seen previously in, uh, in terms of doing doing a different NHS sort of national return or something is that that people had that sense of belonging. They actually when when they had to work for it, they kind of saw that that they were actually fulfilling a role in terms of what uh, uh, like like they actually had a duty or a role to fulfill in this time of crisis. So, you know, that kind of raises the uh, that kind of raises the platform or the level at which we are used to working, you know, so so I think um, so I think going back to Ayu's point is is that uh, 
there are no two ways about it that we have seen or like basically we, we have seen over a period of 18 months that uh, that we can work together if we want. And uh, there is definitely a big, big benefit in actually working together. There is benefit in doing actually doing things in a certain different way than than actually, you know, sort of coming back in uh, that actually having a discussion today and then forgetting about it for a week's time and coming back to it again and then two months down the lane still talking about the same thing. So there's a benefit in actually changing that that sort of how we work. So um, yeah, but but also what I feel is 18 months has been been long period and I can feel that tiredness in the system now that uh, you know that people are now thinking uh, like I mean you can see in terms of conversations when you are having with your own team or you having with the ops teams and other bits is 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 that uh, so basically that's that's what uh, that's what I mean there's a question I have in my mind and also also to a certain extent actually worries me that we may actually lose some of that momentum we gained uh, during these 18 months and it would be a shame to do that and obviously it's, it's not sustainable to the same level but i hope we'll be able to retain a large part of that going forward asma what are your thoughts um i'd agree with everything sanjay said and i think the you know i, I agree with you about people being tired and we've created this industry and extra capacity for addressing a crisis situation, but how do we bring some semblance of normality without losing the momentum? And some of it comes from, we have to do that reflective bit. So, you know, we've been on this rat race and there's a risk that we carry on, but we need to stop and stock take. What were the bits that worked really well that we definitely want to continue? What were the bits that served a purpose during a crisis, but actually can be stood down or, or can be done in a more efficient way? Because I think everything comes down to sort of reviewing, reflecting, and then doing things in the most efficient manner. Because um, if I think of my own life outside of work and everything that I juggle, it all works because I compartmentalize and I reflect and the most important things float up and I do them in the most efficient way. And, and that should be like a model that's applied to every situation. So I think one of the key things is going to be now having that time to stock take about the things that absolutely should remain as they are and the things that we need to revisit and slightly tweak to make more efficient. I hope I can see you. Raise your hand. Thank you for that, Asma. Uh, I think... Sanjay's spot on, as is asthma in, in what they say. I think I think, you know, we've got to that I hope we don't go back. I really don't, right? And you know, there, there, there is there's been this natural transformation. You know, we've we've had so many different transformation programs with the NHS, right? What COVID single handedly has achieved, it's horrible to say that. Right, because there's so many people who have died, and personally, my family has been impacted probably more than most, unfortunately, with the deaths that we've had in my family. Um, but from an NHS perspective, it's galvanised the workforce. It's galvanised tra transformation and change. It's it's sort of expedited digital transformation, data transformation, analytical transformation, and data and analytics you know, is the heart of decision making. You know, if, you know talking to national directors within uh, energy signal improvement, everything's in information and data driven. It is so information and data driven. You know, I think hand on heart, I can genuinely say that in other organizations that I've worked in prior to this, you know, we, we sort of said we were data driven. We said we were using the data and analytics to drive our decision making. But really, we weren't. 
right? And that might be an unfair or untrue, Phil, if, uh, Phil and uh, Sanjay, for your organisations and asthma for yours. But genuinely, where I've worked in the past, that's not been the norm. However, over the pandemic, I have seen that shift. I have genuinely seen things, as Boris would say, we're going to be guided by the data. Um, um, I can't, I can't, I can't speak for Boris, obviously, and um, the government. Um, but I can genuinely say that the parts of the NHS that I've been working with, data has been the key thing that's driven it. Um, and to be fair, that's what we've led the government with as well and how we've advised the government. And I think it's it's been massive. It's been a massive impact. Thank you for that. How long, how long if obviously this awful tragedy of COVID, but if COVID hadn't have hit, how long do you think it would have been to actually take us to get to where we are now in, in real NHS years? Is that even, a, could you answer that or give you an idea? I think we were on that journey, right? But that journey wasn't fast moving mm. um so i i couldn't I, I i'd love to say we'd have been there in five years but then mm. national program for it would have had us there in 2010 if that was the case yeah and you know it, it, that failed that didn't work and then we then we tried other things that hasn't worked we've we've been improving gradually we've been getting better at the tech that we've been using and then going back again to the first point about knowledgeable data and analytics users is still a key thing and I think over this period people have come some way to do better right but there is still a steep learning curve that we need to overcome with the wider NHS workforce who are not uh, data or analytics or data science professionals. Great thank you I'm just going to come to Phil you first uh, and then I'll come to you as because I think Phil raised his hand. Yeah so so the question that kind of jumped into my head uh, from Sanjay's question was was not so much are we going to go back but what do we need to do to maintain what we're doing because I think we can't go back really and I think for, for just picking up on on your point Ayub, about about provider land particularly I think we've definitely come along um, I think that we're on that journey around data use but the need to be kind of on the ball around next in terms of um, pressures meant that our um, the ask of our data teams has, has increased massively over the last 18 months. But that does put a pressure in, which I think what reflects what everybody else was saying. So, so uh, picking up on Asma's points, I think the questions are what more is needed as well as kind of, I think there is something about what can we let go? But ultimately, I think there comes a point of what's the technical solutions that, that need to be in place to make this sustainable? And also what are the kind of um, human capacity? You know, what, what are the staffing solutions that need to be in place to make this sustainable? Because I don't know about other people, but my team are working their socks off at the minute really, really hard, but not in a sustainable way. Um, and 18 months down the line, um, it, you know, the, 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 that that's starting to, to, to impact on people. So I think there's something around what are the technical solutions that are needed to, to take pressure off them. But then equally, you know, how as an organisation, not just as, as a trust, but the NHS, how do we start having that conversation about what what's a sustainable model for that? Thank you, Phil, for that. That's great. Uh, Asma? Yeah, I can see you uh, put your hand up. It was uh, touching on both of those points that Phil and I had made that, you know, one of the biggest differences that I've seen has been that NHS analytics is now viewed as a profession. So before we were kind of uh, a subordinate or a subservient function, whereas now we're invited to the table at the outset rather than as an afterthought to support a piece of work that's going on. And I think seeing that transition and the evolution of that over the coming years, I'm quite excited about that. So the national data and analytics strategy seems to focus on this making this a profession and give us a focus a structure and a recognition that we didn't have before great 
Thank you, Asper. Does that does that answer any of your questions, Sanjay? I'll give you some some good insight. So I think uh, I mean it's really good to know that uh, that we actually share a common view uh, and sort of you know common uh, uh, and we want sort of similar things uh, to actually come out of this this crisis and um, and yeah so um, so I think there is there is definitely uh, definitely we will sustain some of this and uh, but also also. I think I'm really keen on seeing personally is that uh, like kind of in the next few months or so that how quickly actually we, we actually do something about it so that we can actually retain the most of it uh, because longer we take to take any action where we can actually address those concerns or the issues or the constraints we have then you know more difficult it would be to actually retain uh, sort of some of the key things we have gained during these these sort of last 18 months so I think that's where that's where the focus sh uh, sort of should be for NHS going forward. Uh, sorry, can I come in? No, go on, Ed. I, I could see you're itching to say something now. I go on. I think I think I think I agree with you completely, Sanjay. And I know we're thinking from a central perspective around what that could look like. Um, but I'm sure at a local organisation level, you guys are thinking about as well exactly same things in terms of what is it that we've learned and what is it that we can retain. What systems and processes do we need to put into place? What investments do we need to still make? And I think it's the right time to go ask about data um, yes. and, 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 and funding for these areas, in my opinion, um, because the, 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 we've got to level up, right? We know we've got to level up. We, what, what, what's, what's, what's been proved over this period is we don't have the, the, the correct systems in place that we need. Right? And, we, and we need to level up. And you know, the, the the level of investment that needs to be made needs to be not, oh, this is a six month or 12 month investment bit. It's a multi-year program, this is. And it's a continuous investment cycle in this in this area to make sure that we're at the forefront of all of this. And um, there's some brilliant private sector case studies that I would, you know, encourage you to go look at in terms of what they've done in private sectors different types of organizations where i think there's some really valuable things there um but um and i'm happy to pick, pick that up with you offline if that's helpful um but um i think I, I think there's massive amounts of learning but there's continual investment data you know let's not call data oil um that's not the right thing either um but data is valuable and it's valuable to making decisions and if we start to make sure that some of the data layer is is sort of segmented or separated from the application layer at a trust level it makes you so much more important to the overrunning of the trust because this trust is never locked into an application and upgrading past systems upgrading uh, other it based systems starts to become more easier one of the hardest tasks in any sort of pass upgrade right is data migration Absolutely, right. I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you are from your from your recent merger. Um, so so but, but but that's if if you separate the data layer from the application layer, suddenly you get you start to get more possibilities.